0: Welcome to SBC This Week. I'm Brandon Porter. Laura Erlinson is here with me. Laura, how are you doing today?
1: I'm chilly, but I'm good. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm good. We, we are in a strange season in the South where, you know, you start the morning with lots of layers. And and two days this week, I've had to scrape the windshield because it's there's we've had a heavy frost, mm-hmm. a killing frost, as, as some, some would say around here. Um, but then, boy, by the afternoon, the sun is out. And it is, it it feels more like spring than it does fall.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I'm very thankful for my carport that I have at this house I live in now. For yeah. years and years, I did have to scrape my windshield. I don't have to do that anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, it definitely affects the, your, your planning and timing in the morning. Yeah. Um, and as the calendar has changed, the banter, uh, the mid part of this week was, uh, when are we going to put the, up the Christmas tree? Um yeah, in in, some, in the office. We and we have
1: some people in the office that are early Christmasers. <laughs> and I, I just don't I am not I am not about that.
0: That feels like a theological pers- position, Right. <laughs> <It really does. laughs> <They're> early Christmasers. <laughs> are you a pre Christmaser or a post Christmaser or an early Christmaser? <laughs> uh, there's
1: probably a Wikipedia page devoted to it.
0: That's right. Um, so
1: I grew up on a Christmas tree farm,
0: mm-hmm. as I have told you before. Mm-hmm.
1: In Florida, of all places, which those maybe don't really go together, but it's the truth. And so I am all about a real Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. You cannot put a real Christmas tree. You can't even find a real Christmas tree in early November. But That's even if true. you could, you wouldn't want to put it up because it would be crunchy by Christmas Day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you'd you'd have to be a, a multi-Christmaser about That's that. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, no Christmas tree for me just yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, But as we think about the the holidays, we we do have an IMB Lottie Moon story in the mix today. And so we'll get to that in just a few moments. Uh, Jason Allen's going to join us a little bit later in the podcast to talk about some exciting things that have happened at Midwestern over the last few weeks. But, uh, Laura, before we get to those things, we want to make sure to thank and let you hear from our presenting sponsor. And that is Subsplash. If you're a pastor who wants to engage with your congregation and build connections beyond weekend services, Subsplash can help. Subsplash allows your community to access messages, resources, and even give from one place, helping congregations connect in ways you never could have before. Learn more at subsplash.com forward SBC. When you use that link, you'll get a special discount, but you have to use the link. Again, it's subsplash.com forward SBC. So, Laura, this week in Richmond, uh, there was a significant announcement that kicks off. It it sort of served as the kickoff to the Lottie Moon Christmas season.
1: This was so cool. The second largest individual gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, or to IMB, Mm. ever to the Mm -hmm. International Mission Board. So, the Lottie Moon offering goal is $200 million this year. and. Uh, IMB President Paul Chitwood received a check for $4.84 million this week Wow! from the Joy Ledbetter Trust. Joy Ledbetter was a longtime member and a missions educator Mm -hmm. at First Baptist Jonesboro, Arkansas. Mm. She died back in 2010, but she left instructions with her family that the 2,100 acres that had been in her family for 100 years uh, were to be sold sold off and, uh, the money given to missions. So the Southern Baptist foundation handled the sale of that. I guess it's been, t- it, you know, it's probably taken years to get it all handled and it was auctioned off in sections and That's the proceeds right. were divided between IMB and NAM.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, um, yeah.
1: just, Almost just $5 million. That's
0: yeah. <laughs> huge. Um, and you know, and, and it was neat to see the entities work together on that. Yeah. Um, so I've, I'd had some conversations with Warren Peake about that on um, this summer when when the auction happened and um, just just to watch them. And that they, they the folks yeah, at Warren the foundation, Peak, uh, for
1: those that don't know, is the president of the Southern Baptist Foundation.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And and he was very excited about that. And, and I know their staff was very excited about this opportunity to to uh, serve Southern Baptist, to serve the missions effort, our cooperative effort together. Um, and so certainly we're grateful to the Ledbetter family and um, just excited about how the Lord will use that. That, that money uh, to, to take the gospel forward. Uh, Laura, along those lines of significant donations, um, also a, a big one in North Carolina this week.
1: Yeah, I don't know um, if there's precedent for this, but it, it se- if it's unusual, even if it isn't totally unprecedented, the state of North Carolina, uh, also a $5 million figure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, earmarked that much money, $5 million, to North Carolina Baptists on Mission, uh, to serve uh, in the wake of natural disasters there in North Carolina. So um, Richard Brunson is the director of North Carolina Baptist on Mission, and he said they, they've they been working for years to establish these kind of relationships with the state officials there, the uh, emergency management officials and and people there in North Carolina. And this is just a testament to the trust that they've built, built up there, that Southern Baptist disaster relief there in North Carolina is getting, uh, I would say, probably the lion's share of, I mean, that's a lot of money, $5 million, I don't absolutely. know, yeah. um, of their disaster relief budget. So yeah. uh, it's pretty astounding and just a testament to um, the trust and the goodwill that Southern Baptists have built up in the world of disaster relief.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next story that we want to share with you, keeping it in North Carolina, has to do with Southeastern Seminary and a, a partnership between them and IMB that that deals with the pipeline. If you've heard Dr. Chitwood speak um, anytime in the last uh, year and a half or so, um, you he always talks about the pipeline, and yeah. um, and so that this has roots in in there.
1: Yeah, the pipeline has been growing, um, which is encouraging. Is what you want to see, and uh, the interesting thing I thought this is a story that Baptist Press received from Southeastern Seminary this week. The interesting thing I, is that uh, five out of the top ten missionary sending churches, IMB missionary sending churches are in the Raleigh Durham area of North Carolina. Hmm. So there's something just kind of unique about that area. I don't I don't really know. Yeah. Um and so I thought that was really interesting. So I guess IMB and Southeastern Seminary decided, hey, let's since we already have something growing here, let's just cultivate it and see see what we can do. So they hosted this event, um several local churches got together. Uh, Southeastern Seminary was there. Of course, the IMB was there. And they, uh, just to talk what they called it a pipeline workshop. And it was mm-hmm. just a way to kind of let churches know, um, maybe people that had never thought about missions or maybe are already interested in missions, but how can we get you on the road there, get you t- your seminary training? Here's some options for you in missions. And, um, that was just pretty neat. I, and I, I look forward to see, you know, maybe they would do that in some other places too. Yeah. Very yeah.
0: Yeah, very encouraging. Um, okay, so out of North Carolina now, moving west. Yeah, another uh, we think, big
1: seminary story absolutely,
0: this Absolutely, yep. Yeah. And so uh, kind of a, a double dipper from Midwestern this week that they announced uh, major plans for uh, 100 students in their For the Church cohorts uh, to receive significant funding. And like I said earlier, we're going to hear from Jason Allen on that um, in just a few minutes. And so he's going to give us some details about that and what that that, that uh, scholarship looks like and, and the financial support there. But Laura, they also have a significant addition uh, coming to their Spurgeon collection there at Midwestern.
1: That's right. Now we don't have saints as Southern Baptists, but if we did, <laughs> I think Spurgeon would probably be one.
0: That is true.
1: Um. So, uh, if we had a Mount Rushmore, for example, mm-hmm. I think Spurgeon would maybe be in between Lottie Moon and Billy Graham. Or
0: something there you or something go. On the Mount okay. Rushmore. I don't
1: know who the fourth one would be. We could uh, argue that. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. I know it would be those three and may, and whoever. Maybe Brandon Porter. I don't know.
0: Uh-uh, uh-uh.
1: <laughs> so this... I
0: guarantee you that's not true.
1: <laughs> so this story for Midwestern, they acquired uh, something called the Heritage Collection from Spurgeon's College in the UK. This is a college that Spurgeon started. Um Back when he was a pastor and a preacher there in London and Midwestern, because of this acquisition of this collection from Spurgeon's College, it's now the largest collection of Spurgeon materials in the world. This mm-hmm. is Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Seminary. And you told me this week when you got the announcement about it and started reading all the stuff that they got that you were like, OK, I think I'm going to get in my car and drive to Kansas Absolutely. City. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been there before, but but the items in this collection, I definitely want to see. Uh, see, see these items as well. So yeah, so I have not. I have not
1: ever been to Midwestern. I've been to Kansas City once,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had burnt ends for the first time, and it was life changing. So which
0: is which is almost worth the trip itself. Yeah, exactly. So you yeah. come
1: for the burnt ends, and you stay for the Spurgeon Library, or yeah. vice versa, or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I've been wanting to go to the Spurgeon Library for years, ever since it opened, and now I'm like really wanting to go. So maybe one day, this is my my tacky way of asking for an invitation to Midwestern Seminary for something I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I would love to go to that. Absolutely. Um and so so I, I will definitely say that the one thing in this collection that that really um that there are lots and lots of things but the one thing personally that that stands out to me is uh the manuscript in, in essence the manuscript for the Treasury of David. Mm-hmm. Um uh that that Spurgeon wrote and and the reason that that is significant um, is because, um, I I have a grandfather who was very instrumental in, uh, my spiritual shaping and, uh, and, and not, not, not just in growing as a Christian, but I would say growing as a preacher and a pastor and a a teacher, um, of God's word. And he, that, that, that's one of the books that he gave me and I mm. use that book many times over the years if if you um if if a pastor asked me what what should I do in the summer like if you're going to still have a wednesday night service or you know uh, bible study during the summer what should we do during the summer I'm always going to say the psalms that's just mm. sort of my go-to answer I love doing the psalms in the summer and and that treasury of david is always going to be a part of the mix of the commentaries that that I use um in the forming of those studies to carry us through the psalms. And so so that that work is significant. Uh, Spurgeon does such a great job and it is so relevant and helpful now, but it just has a sentimental meaning for me. And so to be able to go back and to see in Spurgeon's hand, the first draft of that would just be oh, so yeah. it'd be fantastic. No so, kidding. That's yeah.
1: exciting. So yeah, so I guess we got to go to Kansas City.
0: Sounds good. Maybe okay. maybe we could do an SBC this week from Kansas okay, City. How I like about it. that? All right. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of young people, we, we were young people at one time. Um, so a speaking of young, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Let's keep moving here, Laura. Come on. <laughs> um, so uh, this last Sunday was Student Baptism Sunday, and and we we talked about that in kind of a preview way last week on the podcast. And this week we had a great story from Nam um, as they uh, helped us and, and came alongside and celebrated that. Uh, Laura, um, yeah, but, great yeah, story, just, great just So story. encouraging the quotes
1: in there from Paul Worcester and Shane Pruitt there at yeah. Nam, the Next Gen guys, just about how important it is to reach that generation. And a lot of churches did baptize yeah. students and uh, this Sunday on that on that day, so it was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We also want to share with you the ERLC podcast has been uh, retooled, I guess, as a way to say it, and uh, they have reformatted that. So if you've not listened to it recently, you should check it out. And um, and I know for those who are listening to it, that they would love for you to leave uh, a review on your podcast platform to help it get noticed by folks. But Laura, I've I've listened to um, a number of the the new formatted uh, podcasts that they've released, and they're they're fantastic.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they're done in more of like a series format right. now. Mm-hmm. And so right. each episode in a series will kind of be about the same topic or similar topics. So this first series uh, or first season, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. is about gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of different topics within that. And uh, Lindsay Nicolette is ERLC's mm-hmm. editorial director and the host of the podcast. And she said the goal is to help Southern Baptist think biblically about complex cultural issues.
0: Yeah, she does a great job and yeah. uh, they, they, they've been very well produced and and I think that they, they would be helpful, um, they're helpful resources. Yeah, so they sure said this, that, that
1: particular, the reason they went with that issue first, gender and sexuality, is when they had surveyed a lot of pastors and leaders, church leaders, that was the issue that kept rising to the top and that's Absolutely. the one that, that people want to talk about, that's what they're dealing with in their churches and so that was their first uh, issue that they wanted to tackle.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So along the lines of that issue, the ERLC actually filed some comments this week with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in Washington, D.C. Uh, they they are uh, trying to speak into some new guidance that the EEOC um, is crafting and, and trying to create that would allow employees to allege they were um, harassed because they were denied access to bathrooms aligning with their chosen gender identity or because they were not uh, referenced by their chosen pronoun, and so, um, or even because they did or did not have an abortion, so the ERLC filed a letter um, November first uh, with the EEOC saying that new guidance will lead to the violation of workers' consciences. Um, there's there's a story Baptist Press. If you'd like to learn more about that mm-hmm. and in detail, and um, and then Laura also thinking about emphasis Sundays. Um, we have have a big one coming up. Uh, this coming weekend and so Sunday November the 5th is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church.
1: Yeah, the IMB has resources for this. Um for a long time Southern Baptist uh observed this day uh in June. Um I believe it was June, but this year um they're the they're observing it on the same day as as everyone else. There's an International Day of Prayer where Christians pray for pers- other persecuted christians around mm-hmm. the world so mm-hmm. that is this sunday november 5th we're recording this on a friday so maybe when you listen to it it'll be uh in the past but sunday november 5th uh the imb has resources at imb.org persecuted for you to use in your church uh, bulletin inserts things like that april bunn is the director of imb's prayer office And I'm going to read what she told Baptist Press in a story this week. As Christians, when we see fellow believers experience persecution, our first response may be to ask God to make it stop. While this is compassionate, we see another example in Scripture. Like the early church, we should pray for those who are suffering, asking God to give them boldness, strength, and endurance, and that through the persecution of His children, God might receive the glory due His name among the nations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, uh, I thought that was a really powerful quote. And I know that I've, I've heard that many times that when you meet persecuted Christians around the world, the very first thing they ask is, is for you to pray for them Mm -hmm. and that they feel very emboldened and very comforted by the fact that, and the knowledge that Christians around the world are praying for them. And so this Sunday is a day to, to talk about that, to educate about that and, and to pray.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We don't lift up those brothers and sisters who are in persecution. I want to be mindful of that. Well, uh, Laura, we have Jason Allen in just a moment. He's going to come on and join us as we talk about those exciting things happening in Midwestern that that we mentioned earlier. Um, Stick around. On the other side of Dr. Allen, we'll have our history moment, and you're not going to want to miss that. Thanks for listening to SBC This Week. Dr. Allen, thanks so much for joining us on SBC This Week.
2: Delighted to be with you. Appreciate so much your work and uh, all that you guys are accomplishing together there. So thank you so much.
0: Sure. You all have had some exciting announcements coming out of the seminary um, the last week or so. Uh, We wanted to cover a couple of those with you. Um, First, uh, talk a little bit about the For the Church cohorts and and what those are so folks can understand them.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, First of all, those three words are not just important, but they are essential to us for the church. We've been real intentional about that as our reason for existence now for, for in our 12th year. So if you know anything about Midwestern Seminary, you've heard of those three words, for the church. That's why we exist, what we're seeking to accomplish. What has happened over the past couple of years that in a beautiful way come together in recent weeks is our ability to announce 100 full tuition scholarships for the first year um, for for, for 100 incoming residential master students. And what's happened is over the past couple of years is we develop a heart to have our, our programs both at the at the master's level and especially and, and comprehensively at the undergraduate level be cohort-based, residentially speaking, and that's been really fruitful for us. Everything from retention to, to more intentional spiritual formation and ministry preparation, all that's worked out very well. So we, we wanna do something similar to that at the graduate level for students who, who come here wanting more and can be more deeply involved and, uh, and students that we can more deeply invest in. So what's happened is a uh, couple of key donors, one in particular, God's put on their heart to uh, to make their training here, their studies here, more financially feasible, and so they have given very generously for us to fund these 100 scholarships for incoming residential master students. These students come in; they'll be placed in cohorts where they get direct mentorship and oversight by faculty, plus strategic shepherding opportunities, strategic ministry opportunities, strategic training opportunities. And so we we anticipate this being, and we're seeing this be really a value-added proposition in addition to what is already a a very compelling regular course of study at the summary level.
0: Hmm. Talk a little bit about the value of those cohorts. I I know I've, I've worked through them before when I see areas of study like shepherding, the Shepherds Fellowship, biblical counseling, women in scholarship. Talk about the value of that process together.
2: Yeah, so you, and also you mentioned a few, also Biblical Studies, Theological Studies, um, um, Biblical Counseling, Fusion Masters, which is a missions program, and then Spurgeon Library cohort as well. And, and what makes that attractive is you have these students that are all in community together. So they're together, they're meeting weekly, they're having dinner and fellowship opportunities beyond that. They have direct access to and direct leadership from key faculty here who are vesting in those cohorts shipping those cohorts, and keeping those students together. And what you find is when you're at seminary, ministry formation takes place, yes, behind a lecture, in chapel, these other larger events as well, conferences, what have you. There's something about that is life-on-life moments with these professors, with these administrative leaders, and with other students. So the cohorts really are, are, are incubators for that. They're, they're settings for that. They're context for that. They're, they're, they're a habitat for that. So we are grateful that God is blessing that. We've seen that already recently here. But with the additional scholarship funding, we really believe God's putting gas on the fire here for these to take off and us to be able to impact more profoundly, more thoroughly, a, a, an increasingly number of students.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, there is a little bit of an additional or an add on, I guess, to the Fusion Masters cohort. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so Fusion started here actually over 10 years ago before I became president, about 15 years ago, an undergraduate program for students coming in who desire to pursue missions. You don't have to be a missions major to be in Fusion, but many of those students are missions and ministry majors. And it it couples with the the, the, uh, typical course of study here, a, a very lengthy deployment overseas for service on the mission field in concert with the IMB. So every summer we'll send between seventy and eighty students overseas for close to three months, kind of kind of twelve weeks, give or take. And they're serving in in the Middle East. They're serving in in Asia. They're serving in certain parts of Europe, certain parts of of South America. They tend to be in places that are that 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 are very needy for the gospel. Places that is pretty austere, honestly. It's pretty Spartan. Uh, these are not kind of the proverbial, you know. Uh, youth group mission trip to Cancun. Uh, they're going to hard-to-reach places and doing hard things, but they are also seeing God bless their work. Usually, every year or every other year, my wife and I go overseas and visit with a number of our fusion teams. So we've been able to be there, see their work. It's so compelling what they're doing. We really have the best and brightest students God has called here through that program. And it's sweet for me to see God raising up a new generation of missionaries through it. So about three years ago, we decided, look, at the undergraduate level, this this is so awesome. What do we like to do at the master's level, the graduate level? And so we began working with IMD, with some strategic supporters to make it as well, again, affordable at the master's level like it is at the undergraduate level and uh, and to build that out. And so we have that now at the master's level as well, the graduate level as well, Fusion Masters, where we have students that study here. They're a regular master's student, MDF student typically. And then they're going overseas in the summer for, again, close to three months to serve on the mission field with missionaries and serving people who have tremendous gospel need. So we love it So those students get equipped on the field. They serve on the field. They're sharing the gospel on the field. They come back here all the more fired up for the course of study, all the more fired up for a life of, of ministry and missions very often. And so we've seen that to be a real win for the institution, a real win for the students, a real win for the IMB, and uh, most importantly, a real win for the nation's.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of being fired up, I'm sure you all have been fired up this week with the announcement that you've had concerning the Spurgeon Library and uh, just an amazing collection coming your way. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Look, I I could not be more delighted over an announcement that, uh, that, that, that I could make or that we have recently made. And I'll give you just a bit of context here and your listeners and uh, without getting too much into the weeds, but just a bit of context here. Spurgeon, by any estimation, is one of the great preachers of church history, one of the leading figures of Protestant Christianity, and clearly one of the leading figures in Baptist history. Uh, And he may be the leading figure in those three categories, perhaps. But Spurgeon, you know, ministered in the 1850s and 60s and 70s and 80s uh, in, in London and then from London and beyond London the world over. He died in 1892. And when he died, he was clearly the, the best known, uh, most influential preacher, pastor in Protestant Christianity. So he dies in 1892. And then his wife, Susie, carried on his ministry uh, in her own way after his death through pastor's book funds and, and ministering, and encouraging pastor's spouses and all the rest. Well, when you come to the very end of the 19th century, the family began to make decisions about what they would do with Spurgeon's collection. His library proper, meaning the books themselves, under, uh, underwent an international bidding process. And William mm-hmm. Jewell College in Missouri and Missouri Baptist Convention partnered together to buy that library, those volumes, in 1902. They made their way across the Atlantic, were at William Jewell College for almost exactly a century. Midwestern Seminary in the early 2000s bought the books from William Jewell. Now, when I came here in 2012, we had the books. They really weren't displayed, and we we, we were in need of funds to do that. And God raised up, really in 2014, a couple in particular, uh, Bill and Connie Jenkins, who gave in a spectacularly generous way to build the Spurgeon Library. And those who are watching this and not just listening to this, they could see uh, my screen backdrop is actually a picture of the Spurgeon Library. So currently, the Spurgeon Library here has existed for about 10 years About 6,000 of Spurgeon's books and artifacts are displayed there. It's part museum, part library, part study center, and uh, it is a stunning collection and uh, beautiful in every way and usable as well. Go back to the end of the 19th century. The family sold the books, but, but the rest of Spurgeon's artifacts, by and large, went to Spurgeon's College in London. Spurgeon's College is a pastor co- pastor's college that Spurgeon started in 1856. Still is a very relatively young man. It quickly took off and uh, it grew, became very influential, and uh, their ministry has persisted until until this day. They're still there serving uh, in, in the London area and, and throughout the UK. Um, we built a relationship with them the past decade or so, Brandon, and uh, that, that's been warm and, and, and gracious, and uh, we've talked over the years about this collection, and, and they reached out to us late summer, to us, and to a number of other institutions as well about the fact that they come to uh, to decision to sell that collection. We were, we were obviously, our interest was peaked, not just because we have the Spurgeon Library, but also because um, we see this as a broader stewardship that we have for Southern Baptists, for Evangelicals as a whole. And frankly, we did not want to see this collection be bought by a trader who would buy it and sell it piece by piece online uh, for years and years to come. That would be a nightmare. So God put on our heart to, to get it, to do it. We began to have conversations with supporters, uh, Bill Connie Jenkins, who I just mentioned, stepped up in a major way. Other supporters have stepped up and still others. We have other folks who are giving or praying about giving. So this really is a group effort for that. We're really grateful. So why were we so eager to get this collection and why are we so delighted that we now mm-hmm. have? The collection consists of literally more than I can name, but just to touch on some of the categories, about 11,000, uh, of Spurgeon's sermon uh, manuscript. So when he would preach, a stenographer stenographer team would take down every word he said. Mm. Those those transcripts would then go to Spurgeon, who would mark them up and edit them. So many of your listeners have been in a pastor study mm. on the wall. They'll have framed one of these pages where you have Spurgeon's edits and a commemorative piece like displayed. Well, they mm-hmm. have over 11,000 of those pages. Wow. Uh, they have over 700 of actual sermon outlines that Spurgeon took into the pulpit to preach from. Mm-hmm. They have over 500 letters from Spurgeon or to Spurgeon from family members or other ministry luminaries, like like D.L. Moody, for instance, that just comes to mind. Uh, they have original handwritten journals from Spurgeon's early years. I mean, over a dozen of those. Can, wow. can, sermon manuscripts, sermon outlines, just theological reflections, ministry reflections, uh, a book of poems. I mean, there's just a lot, a lot there. Mm-hmm. Also, there are artifacts that have made their way to that collection, really, during Spurgeon's life and ever since. Um, w- w- there are things like uh, like busts of Spurgeon, given to Spurgeon, portraits, paintings of Spurgeon, given to Spurgeon. Um, everything from Spurgeon's walking sticks to his reading classes to his pocket watch to uh, his clergy collar I mean, the the list really really goes on and on, and so I mean, the handwritten manuscript of lectures to my students, handwritten notes, and manuscript from yeah. the Treasure of David, yeah. and so.
0: So, are those things? So, talk about how they'll be on display and how folks will be able to to access those and see them.
2: Uh, so basically it'll be it'll be in, in three venues. So the bulk of the collection, um, all the collection in the near term goes to the seminar's archival space mm-hmm. where it's secure under lock and key. And we were very diligent on the front end working with Spurgeon's College UK to authenticate the collection, to, to make sure it was rightly cataloged and exactly what we were getting. Uh, we have professional teams go and do that. We have professional uh, appraisers appraise mm-hmm. it. We have professional packers, pack it, professionals, shippers, ship it. I mean, this was all done professionally. The same group that handles the items from the British Museum actually handled us uh, securing this as far as getting it here. And so basically, um, the bulk of the contents that that are not for immediate or or for public display day to day will be housed in somebody's archive for research. Within the Spurgeon Library, um, that will be updated and refreshed with with additional display cases. And so a lot of it will go there. So those who want to tour will come to campus and just like they can tour the Spurgeon library now, they'll be able to do that in months ahead and years ahead. And that'll have additional displays, additional items there. And then we also are going to put some displays on display in the presence home where we have museum space there. We have seminary art, uh, seminary displays and artifacts there. So, so to kind of round it out. So it'll be those three places, a lot of it in the seminary's archives in the library. The bulk of it, as far as a displaying standpoint, the Spurgeon Library and some of the present home and the display cases there that, that that exist as well.
0: And so, what's the timetable for the for somebody who's listening and saying, that i got to make a trip"? What's the timetable?
2: Yeah, so the, uh, there's a little ambiguity there, but we yeah. envision, at no later than really April, we envision uh, in April having like a formal rededication of Spurgeon Library and, and kind of ribbon cutting new displays and that sort of thing, and, and it being refreshed. So we anticipate all that coming together really no later than April.
0: Fantastic. Lots of exciting things happening there at Midwestern.
2: Yeah, we're grateful to God. Um, This past year, we finished with over 5,100 students. Uh, I just received a data point a few minutes ago, which is actually really sweet, that uh, since our founding in in 1957 uh, until until 2023, um, and all the graduates since 1957 to 2023, um, my registrar informed me just a short while ago that from 2012 to 2023, We've had more graduates from 2012 to 2023 uh, than from 1957 to 2011. So the total graduates of the history of the institution, now over 51% have been since 2012. And uh, that's deeply rewarding just to see the ministry impact we're having as we serve Southern Baptist churches and, and really churches even beyond the SBC. It's, it's profoundly gratifying to see the, the reach of our ministry let me say to you and through you, to those listening, it's such a privilege to serve Southern Baptists. We count it a precious stewardship. Uh, we are committed to doing that as faithful as we can. We, we value, we greatly appreciate um, the partnership and support through the Cooperative program. And uh, I, I know that, that given the way the world is in 2023 and, and given the way ministry is and challenges in the culture and all the rest. There's always good news and bad news mixed in Anytime you open your social media feed or or read press accounts. But Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City is one of those places, one of those stories that that really is encouraging. And so to your listeners, I would say be encouraged. God is doing a lot of good things in our convention. And one of those good things, one of those places is Midwestern Seminary. And even these days, as we talk about scholarships and cohorts and Spurgeon Library expansion acquisition, uh, it's all really good news.
0: So, Laura, that's definitely good news from Midwestern, and uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're so thankful for all that the Lord is doing in all the seminaries um, where, where uh, students are being raised up, pastors are being raised up, missionaries being raised up uh, to, to uh, go out and to share the the, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to make sure to thank our presenting sponsor, Subsplash. Make sure to check them out at subsplash.com forward slash S-B-C. Now, Laura, the history moment today comes from a day and age um, when the Internet was not on anyone's mind um, no. whatsoever.
1: <laughs> no, not even a gleam in anyone's eye a yeah. long time ago. Yep. Yeah. So I've been going, th- you know, I go through the archives every week and try to mm-hmm. find a history moment. And so before I get to today's history moment, I just want to say that it's been funny to me these last two or three weeks. Uh, every, t- every year this year, I've been at Baptist Press a long time. And every year about this time, I have this sense of, uh, dread is the wrong word, but just this sort of weight on my shoulders of mm-hmm. making sure that we we get a report in Baptist Press from every single state annual meeting.
0: There's and how many 40, are those?
1: There's 41. Yeah. And so I have a little checklist every year and I check them off as we run them. Yeah. And it's a big deal. And I, 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 yes. I take it real seriously, you know, and it's always a lot of stress and making sure that we get them all. And I feel like I'm... Wearing people out, asking them, Hey, I need your report. I need your report. And they're like sick of hearing from me. And, all, and so I apologize. Whatever. But you're
0: you're wearing them out in love.
1: In love, in Christian right? love. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so this week, at, at the last couple of weeks, when I'm going through the archives at this particular week, in whatever year it is, there's always a bunch of reports from state annual meetings. And I've just, I'm like, you know what? Somebody at Baptist Press has been doing this absolutely way before me yes. and somebody way after me, long after I've retired and moved to Florida or wherever, somebody's going to keep doing this. Uh-huh. And there's like a sense of, you know, comfort in that. Somehow. Yeah, absolutely. But I just thought that was cool. You're
0: part of a bigger plan.
1: That's right. Yes. <laughs> so today though, our history moment is from 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And this issue of Baptist Press did indeed have some state annual meeting reports in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but this is early days because BP came into existence in 1946. So, yeah. this is BP is very new. It's a baby. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Uh, so, November the 3rd, 1946, um, which today we're recording this on November 3rd. This is a really short story. So, I'm okay. just going to read the whole thing. Yeah. Gate Line, Nashville, Tennessee. Here we go. A $5 bill has come to the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee in testimony to a sailor's observation on the need of Christian missions. The envelope, which the mailman brought to the convention offices, contained only two items, the money and a note, quote, to be used for missionary work at home and abroad, end quote. Outside the envelope was the return address of Ensign Michael Childress, U.S. Navy, San Francisco. Mm. That's the end of the story. So just a couple little paragraphs about this sailor in san francisco somehow had heard about southern baptist missions maybe he was southern baptist maybe he was uh had grown up southern baptist and now was stationed in the navy in san francisco and just had a burden on his heart for missions and mailed a five dollar bill to the sbc offices in nashville and i just thought what a just inspiring story as we Mm -hmm. enter lottie moon season and i did I, i did a little google uh, search to figure out what is $5 in 2023. Okay. And it's about $63 and 41 cents. Okay. And I thought, what if every Southern Baptist gave $63 and 41 cents to the Lighty Moon Christmas offering this year? Wow. It would blow that $200 million goal out of the water. Absolutely. And, uh, even if, well, really, even if every Southern Baptist gave $5, it would blow the goal out of the water, Yeah. but $63 would be amazing. Yeah. And we could fill up that pipeline that we were talking about.
0: So, Absolutely.
1: I just thought that was a fun little story. And I, I wonder if, uh, Michael Childress or any of his descendants are, are still around. That would be cool.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think that's so encouraging to think about not, not only the fact through our cooperative partnership that we are working together, that there are other churches all across the country, honestly, sometimes all across the world who are working together, partnering in this, in this effort. Um, but then also the the span of time that that as we begin to turn the corner and really focus on the one hundredth anniversary of the cooperative program, mm-hmm. um, as we think about this going back to uh, nineteen forty eight and uh, giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and mm-hmm. so some, something I mean that that's um, that's the year before my father was born, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, here's I mean, this,
1: this man might have served in World War II. I mean, yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah, and years so removed from that.
0: But but it's 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 that offering. It, it is the same offering where that money is coming and being used and carried forward. It's so encouraging yeah. to it to be really able to, is. to stand together. Yeah, yeah. So, I loved that story. Um, so you know, and and I can't help but but read here as we kind of wrap or, or think about as we wrap up. Uh, you know, Jonathan Howe and Amy Whitfield. This is still sort of their podcast, and yes, we're just the guest host that's here. That's Right. Uh, for, for this interim placeholders, seat. Yeah. That's right. And so that story, obviously the first story we did with Lottie Moon, it just reminds me of Amy Whitfield's new book um, on Lottie Moon. And mm-hmm. so just, just an opportunity to commend that to you. I'm sure you're going to hear about that more in this podcast in the coming weeks, but just go ahead and just reminding you, if you don't know already, informing you that Amy Whitfield has a new book. Um, this year on on Lottie Moon, and you should yeah, go find that. It's a
1: children's book, and it's yeah, it's fantastic. really yeah, Check it's it great.
0: Out. Yeah, so well, Laura, thank you for that history moment. Thank thank you for uh, the the stories and all the information. Um, I know it's been an encouragement to me to to consider and and be reminded of how how the Lord is faithfully working through our cooperative effort together.
1: Yeah, I'm always encouraged uh, when I think about it and read about it, and um, it's fun to talk about it. So thank Absolutely. you, Brandon. And all of these stories and a lot more uh, you can find on BaptistPress.com. Thanks for listening.